the way you cook is about who you are, right? And it's about how you deal with life and the world. And with me, I like you know me well enough to know that I want to squeeze all the juice out of the thing, <laughs> right? Quite literally and figuratively, I suppose, right? When I was at school here at George Brown, was the first time I really tasted French food. Mm-hmm. Right, I that was I'm an Indian. I'm from an yeah. Indian family. Uh, we uh, cranked our flavor in my house. Yeah. Everything was cranked. Turbo. And my people were super disappointed when I started culinary school because I was getting excited about like pot roast and pork chops <laughs> and like homemade. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they they'd see the things in my fridge and they were like, "This is not what we had hoped for <laughs> with you in culinary. This is all going yeah. terribly wrong." Right. But I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, I get it. This." The food is like the people. Mm-hmm. Like the food is reflective of the vibe. And then when I look at my family's food and see that it's this like crazy mishmash of all kinds of intense flavor that somehow all just works together, kind of like India, mm-hmm. right? It's this <laughs> intense mishmash of madness that you're like, what's on your plate tells a story about who you are. Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Innes. And I'm Wendy Ma. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Joshna Maharaj. Hello. Hi, it's really Joshna. nice to be here. Great to have you. So Joshna is a chef, a two-time TEDx speaker and activist who wants to help everyone have a better relationship with their food. She believes strongly in the power of chefs and social gastronomy to bring values of hospitality, sustainability, and social justice to the table. Recently, Joshna has been working with hospitals and universities in Toronto to build new models for institutional food procurement, production, and service. Her first book, entitled Take Back the Tray, coming out May 2020, captures the lessons and experience from her work to create a shareable blueprint for changing institutional food systems around the globe. Joshna is also a regular host on CBC Radio, a passionate public speaker, and she co-hosts a food podcast called Hot Plate. Welcome, Joshna. Hello, thanks. So great to have you It's here. really nice to be here. It's sweet to hear you read that nice intro. <laughs> Do you know when I first met Joshna? Where? She made me polar bear in Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, right. Yeah, that was That's like... right. It was called... What was it? Even? Northern Food Northern Nights. Northern Food Nights. It was our mutual friend, Northern Twyla. Food Nights. Yeah. How'd that was cook, walrus. It? Oh, it was walrus. You had walrus. Somebody walrus. else had the polar bear. I had, a, yeah. I had walrus and I made a curry. Yes. Walrus curry. Yeah. Because the walrus eats, it has this really slick, like essential fatty acid, fishy Mm. taste. And, and general wisdom, like they just eat it frozen and raw as we know, or they boil the snot out of it Mm -hmm. and then just do something with the meat. But I, when I heard that, I was like, listen, where I come from, if you have a a less than desirable meaty flavor that you're trying to get rid of, you assault it with masala Mm -hmm. uh, and see what happens. (laughs) It was Uh, delicious. And so we made this. And Jay, I got to say, cutting that walrus, the meat looked exactly like uh, beets, roasted beets, that slick, leathery kind of vibe. You know what I mean? It was intense. But that curry... It was that like curry a, yeah. worked, man. That curry worked. And we were like pretty confident that it was first <laughs> walrus curry on the planet. Yeah. I, think I, heard, I think I heard that somewhere right. else. Yeah. Before. <laughs> like, I think that. that this is a first. Oh it was definitely all our first. the great, like, I love the conversation, the giggling, uh, you know what I mean? I'll be a problematic conversation about figuring out what the Indian and Indian looks like on the plate. Wow, interesting. Right? Mm. Uh, like I... I'm on a kick around this. I just decolonization has been a thing that's been rolling around in my mind. But I, I keep thinking, look, if this ridiculous mistake is still with us 
for whatever stupid reason, 400 years, this linguistic nonsense has lasted such that my community and indigenous communities are linked together with this name. Yeah. Uh, but we are also both communities of people with deep experiences of colonization. Why are we not doing this together? Mm -hmm. Right. We're finding some way to put this, you know, even let's have a laugh. Right about it all. Uh, let's let's figure out ways to do this together. And I think there are some really cool opportunities. I've been trying to find some indigenous chefs who are picking up what I'm putting down. Wow. Uh, but I think that there's really there's a future there for us. Like, and why have we never seen a conversation with an indigenous elder, or an old Indian person, talking about what decolonization could look like, mm -hmm. right, or what the experience of it is? Because there's something there, anyhow. That's pretty amazing. And, and, and it kind of segues into some of the things that we talk about. Like the topic for the show today is your road to becoming a chef activist. Yes. Right? So yes. maybe do you want to share with uh, with the listeners how how that path started? Where yes, 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 for sure. So I am a George Brown alumni. Nice. Whoop, whoop. 2002 is when I graduated from chef training program here. And to be very honest with you, the thing that I left with was a pretty clear sense of what I did not want to do. I was not interested in the restaurant stuff. I have to honestly tell you, a lot of it had to do with the the race and gender nonsense mm -hmm. that I had to deal with. And, and that my experience of it here at school was a clear indicator of what the industry was going to be like. And it was really, it was actually really frustrating because it was coming from the instructors too. It wasn't, it was just my fellow students, right? This nonsense came from instructors and it was so reinforced that I was like, this is clearly the industry. Like that the only path upon graduation yes. is a restaurant or a hotel yes. situation. Or, or being a chef that way, mm. right? That was the thing. Like I remember so clearly but when I was here at school, it was Siegfried's. Right. right. Not that it was pre-chef's house. And so we had the class. And I remember the one day I got put on the grill, right, for for the prep session. And there, for whatever reason, we had a bunch of bits. So there was like a mixed grill plate. Mm -hmm. That was my the entree that I was putting together. And in my class, it was like 30 of us, three women, 27 men. Throughout the course of the three hours, every single dude had to come by and do a little quiz on my times and temperatures to make sure that I knew how to handle the grill, hmm. right? And I was like, are you, are you for real? Seriously, all of you are gonna come by and ask me this question. And it just like the, like the, the, the not so aggressive yet undeniable sexual harassment nonsense. Uh, we all know, right, any, any lady chef with any experience, any, any years behind her has learned to become a trash mouth pirate. That's the way it works, right? We are, there's a sink or swim uh, idea. Yeah. And so, Jay, if we go back to why I love cooking and why I love, you know, my connection with food and feeding people, the idea that I would somehow have to shoehorn myself into there just did not. I was like, uh -uh, I'm not excited about this mm -hmm. at all. And so I, my first job was at Dish Cooking Studio. Uh, I had the morning pastry baking uh, shift mm -hmm. and I loved it. Right, scones, muffin sandwiches, all right. that it was perfect, uh, and that's where I got my first taste of teaching mm. cooking classes, yeah. okay. and that was a great fit. I is is like, that where you learned how to make your fantastic scones, where you freeze the butter? Yes, first yes, and that's then, exactly. And then grate the butter. Yes, yeah, I picked up that <laughs> that's tip so from funny you that years ago. Remembering years ago. that, yes, yeah. that scone recipe is there. But oddly enough, the folks at the stop came and did a fundraiser at mm. Dish. 
right? Massimo Capra was cooking and I was assisting him. And I found out about the stop and I was like, wait a minute, mm. right? One thing led to the next. They asked me to help them hire for a cook position hmm. because they were sure they could, the, the social context, they could assess somebody's skills, but they didn't feel strong enough in assessing culinary skills, mm -hmm. right? And a person, the, the cook at the stop needs to have both that social context and that large capacity, large quantity production, mm -hmm. you know, skill. So they asked me to be on the hiring committee. And truthfully, all the people we interviewed had one or the other. They didn't have both. And so then when I was talking to then Nick Saul was the executive director, he was asking me, he was like, is this a good job? Are we not, you know what I mean? Is this salary not great, is it? And when I actually looked at it, it was like a full-time permanent job with salary benefits, wow. you know, the whole vacation paid, you know. Like what a dream I mean? job for a, for uh, for a, a cook in the city, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so then he was like, why don't you take this job? And I was yeah. like, great question. So oh, yeah. the stop was really where mm -hmm. it all came together for me. Well, maybe we could just jump into the to the stop a little yeah, bit. Yeah, for sure. About what the stop is. Mm -hmm. Community Food Centers Canada. Um, what, what differentiates the stop from a uh, from like a soup kitchen so the stop officially the name the phrase community food center really helps mm -hmm. uh because essentially what i've loved so much about the stop is that it understand they we understand that when hunger hits somebody's life it has this domino impact and everything kind of comes try you know comes falling down mm -hmm. so the solutions need to be holistic mm -hmm. so obviously there's emergency feeding food bank dining program people got to eat every day right mm -hmm. this is we just got to keep getting food in but then there's also capacity building i ran the community kitchens program urban agriculture is a huge part as you know mm -hmm. there's perinatal education mm -hmm. perinatal help uh, to support mamas and to get mamas healthy so that we can not have them all having to have formula. We all know the politics there. But then the other piece of what the stop does that I love is this advocacy, mm -hmm. both organizational advocacy around social assistance rates and poverty and justice, mm -hmm. and in supporting community members to learn to tell their stories, mm -hmm. to advocate for themselves. Uh, and this is like straight advocacy, like in a social services lineup for money, but also at a demonstration in front of CP24 or, you know what I mean, to give a deputation at City yeah. Hall to really talk about what food and food access means. Uh, so the like, we really see opportunities for people to change their lives mm -hmm. right and and the, and the fact that it's food and community connection around yeah. food to support that change is the magic of what happens there so offering a plate of food is key we got to eat ideally mm -hmm. three times a day but there's so much more to the issue about why not everybody can put food on the table that mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that that the stop wants to have this bigger discussion. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, re I remember the, the the stop treating people with dignity. Like that yeah, was one, man. that was oh, one goodness, of their, yes. their their values was good food for everyone. Yeah. Like the access to not just food but healthy, nutritious, nutrient dense food. Yes, and to treat community members as community members with dignity and yes. that and that really stood out for me getting so, served at the tables is a big deal right the huge. stigma of a, of a soup kitchen lineup yeah. is really hard on the heart and community right? gardens and so the experiment was what would my elevated food skills enable me to offer this community right and right off the bat it was scratch made food mm -hmm. Right. Because and my own sensibilities. Right. Because the tricky piece is that the food ingredients for lunches would come off of the trucks from Second Harvest and Daily Bread Food Bank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God bless them. It's a super important service. However, a large part of that, a large part of the food, at least at that point in history, I think things changed somewhat. 
a lot of processed food, a lot of food that didn't make it in the grocery store, mm -hmm. right? A lot of like we'd see like square bagels and all that kind of mm -hmm. weird stuff that didn't fly in the grocery store yeah. would come through the food bank. And that would come to me in the kitchen, but it was like, it was dead lifeless food, mm -hmm. right? And especially in this context, right? We hear a lot of people say flippant things like beggars can't be choosers, mm -hmm. but that's too easy, right? Yeah. It's far too easy. And so thankfully at the stop, I had an organizational mandate to put food that was as nutritious on the plate as possible. So I had a freedom to say, I'm not taking this. Mm. I'm not taking flats of pop uh, or weird bottled, you know, light yeah. raspberry vinaigrette. Kang. And so we I, we started culling. And, and the beauty of it all was that the, the, the truck drivers got to know that there was a chef somewhere so mm -hmm. occasionally there'd be a nice box of mushrooms mm -hmm. mm. right or a bottle of olive oil or yeah. a hunk of cheese or something that they would save and be like hey chef we know that you'll dig this mm -hmm. and so I squeezed out a bit of money and just bought like canola oil and red wine vinegar and taught everybody how to make simple vinaigrettes mm -hmm. Right. The food was very simple, but it was all scratch made. And we managed to have a quarter of the plate as fresh salad. Mm -hmm. That felt really important. Fresh Amazing. green things. Yeah. Right. I mean, there is such a thing as a really good free lunch. Right. Mm -hmm. We can, in fact, do this. And even when we got to a place where we were buying the food, like as our fundraising grew and we were able to start buying ingredients, it was a minimal cost, right? Mm -hmm. By the time I left, so I left the stop in 2009, mm -hmm. my food cost for lunch was $1.85 a plate. Wow. wow. That bit of truth is what has emboldened me to go busting through public institutions mm -hmm. this way. Because if I can if I can give you a meal like I was serving at the stop for a buck eighty-five, yeah. there's no reason why our hospital plates can't tell the same story, yeah. right? So fast forward from from there yes. and, and you've got two TED Talks under your belt. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Pretty rocking. TEDx Toronto was the first one. And and it was the same year that I had started my first hospital project mm -hmm. and redefining was the theme mm -hmm. and I was actively involved in redefining hospital food right and I wanted to crack at it so I applied and then thankfully got accepted but then found out so sweetly that there were a number of community nominations mm -hmm. unbeknownst to me I don't know who these lovely folks were mm -hmm. so it all came together and I got my 18 minutes on stage to talk about new visions for hospital food mm -hmm. right and so when I got another chance to do when I was running food services at Ryerson TEDx, they did a TEDx Ryerson conference and asked me to speak. And I, I jumped at the chance to talk about the, the talk I did there was called A New Way to Think About Food. And it was really directed at students mm -hmm. to, to encourage them to think about their relationship mm -hmm. with their food, right? Yeah. It is too easy to be dismissive about it or to think that that's the thing that you'll pay attention to when you become a grown up yeah. and you have, a, you know, you have a mortgage and a life and you'll deal with it then. Uh, I really wanted them to be more engaged with it now. And and really the juice of that is to connect to the fact that our that our relationship with food is about a life force. Mm -hmm. Right. It's about staying alive. Right. And so much of what's happening with our food, we're really not taking it seriously yeah. enough. I remember having a conversation with you. We had lunch, it must have been seven or eight years ago, yeah. and, you were, and you were talking about the Scarborough Project. Yes. Um, where you went into Scarborough, was it Scarborough General? The Scarborough Hospital, yeah. yeah. And you were tasked with rewriting their menus. Mm -hmm. And you said something along the lines of, you know, here, so if you look at the demographics, Scarborough is, there are a lot of expat Indians yep. in, in Scarborough, and then they come in, they get sick, they come into the hospital, and then they're fed tuna salad 
and mm-hmm. jello applesauce and applesauce yeah. right and i remember you I, one thing stood out for me you said you know like one in in indian cuisine dal is one of the most like basic totally. like neutral lentil based like like soupy goodness that, yeah, that, that easy to digest easy to digest not expensive lots of nutrition yeah. great flavor yeah well it's a, it's real like i remember talking to some south asian patients Right, this one gentleman had had a stroke, and his adult daughter was there, sort of holding a tuna sandwich up to his mouth for him to bite. And I asked him, I said, "Sir, have you ever had a tuna salad sandwich in your life before?" He said, "No." Mm. And then he's, and then he realized that I was re- accepting feedback, uh, and he was like, <laughs> "And while I'm at it, applesauce is not food in my culture." Right. right, and he was like, "We don't even know what to do with it." Uh, and I was like, "How would you feel if I could bring you a plate of dal and rice right now?" And he yeah. was like, "Can you bring me?" And I was like, "Sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have brought yet. it up. I shouldn't have brought it up. I'm you sorry." Uh, yeah. The other other dangerous side of this is that on those hospital trays, there's a little slip of paper that has the patient's name and their diet and what they've received for the day. Right. right. And we saw really regular patterns of patients saving those pieces of paper up and then using them as eating guidelines for when they go home. Wow. Right? Now, the capacity of that to be a teaching tool is very exciting, Mm. but the on the ground experience of it is a disaster because you now have an older Southeast Asian man hunting down a loaf of Wonder Bread and a can of tuna when quite likely whatever traditional Chinese food that is being cooked in his house is I'd much rather you know him yeah. eat that mm-hmm. than this. But there's this notion that this is what the doctor said I should eat, mm-hmm. right? Which is oh, that's, like that makes me want to burn something food. down. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I've now written a book. Uh, because I have two hospital projects. I worked at Scrubber Hospital and at Sick Kids Hospital here in Toronto. And then I had the awesome chance to overhaul campus food services at Ryerson University. Wow. Uh, and I got a good run. I got two and a half years on mm-hmm. campus there. So at the end of that, though, I was like, so now what? Right. And I have mm-hmm. the delightful chance to roll around uh, the world talking about my work. And when I talked to people, I really felt the need to have something to put in their hands. There's a reason why institutional food has been left to the end of the revolution as it would be, because it is by far the ugliest, messiest Mm -hmm. beast to unwind. And I feel like there's some universal objective bits about what I figured out. So I thought, let's put those lessons in a book so I can say, here's steps A through D, right? Don't Mm -hmm. do this again. I've done this painful stuff. Take this to get started and then see what it looks like for the rest of it in your community, in your space, in that context. So hopefully if I've done it right after you all read it, it will be both a great argument for why institutional food should be better than it is and solid blueprints for Mm -hmm. how to actually get started. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that sort of have always stood out for me, Joshna, is your passion. So about a year ago, I was I was driving to work, seven a.m. and mm. your lovely voice popped on. Oh, Metro Morning, must yeah, have been, yeah. It was an article you wrote in Today's Parent. Oh and yes, it was, and it was called "How We're Teaching Our Kids to Eat Can Actually Be Kind of Racist." Yep. And I, I was pretty blown away by that. And I was wondering if you give us a little synopsis of yeah, what yeah, yeah. caused you to write this this piece, and uh, and uh, we, maybe we can have a conversation about, sure. about it. For uh, sure, for sure. The the nice people at Today's Parent came to me. With this idea about a piece, because an issue had come up uh, about a a young kid going to daycare and they were eating lunch. They had eaten some rice with their hands, Mm -hmm. right? 
And the message that came home to the parents at the end of the day was that the kid needed to work on improving their table manners. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when I hear things like that, there's a, I have a, an instant red flag because mm -hmm. there's a, there are a few problems about this because essentially it's the suggestion that eating food with your hands is somehow less mannered, mm -hmm. less appropriate, of right? Of course. Yeah. Uh, when that's a real, it's a real problem because mm -hmm. it's 100% not the truth. And so they, they pitched it and they asked me if I'd be interested. And mm -hmm. I jumped in and was very delighted to write this piece. And the way I wrote the piece, the first paragraph was the story about the way my father taught my brother and I to eat with our hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and the point of it was to illustrate the fact that there is, in fact, a very mannered way to mm -hmm. eat with your hands. Yeah. My dad was very serious about how much of our hand got messed up and, mm -hmm. you know, and how messy our plate was. But because I think that when people from perhaps Western uh, traditions or non-hand eating mm -hmm. traditions, consider eating with your hands. There's sort of an assumption that it's like you're just sort of grab, like the way we eat popcorn. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're just grabbing something and shoving it into your face when it when you actually use your fingers mm -hmm. in a much more detailed mm -hmm. way. Right. So that was what I wrote. And, and I really, I got quite pointed mm -hmm. because... In the context of education, these are yeah. really dangerous messages yeah, in yeah, Toronto. The shame and guilt. It's a that real you're problem. On top of the child. Exactly, yeah. right? And it's and I mean quite basically, it's just an echo of a history of European colonial mm -hmm. thinking trying to tame the wildness, mm -hmm. you know, out of whatever community of people they were oppressing at any given mm -hmm. moment, right? It's it's really important mm -hmm. that we notice this and understand this. It's not to say like uh, I also went further in the piece to talk about how my dad took as much pain to teach my brother and I how to eat with a knife and fork and a spoon, right? right? It wasn't like we just, but it was very clear that the hand eating was just for Indian food, mm -hmm. right? And that when we were eating other things, right. there were other ways to do this. Mm -hmm. And so it felt really important to talk about this because it's too, the, these are the moments where we have to really reconsider our language and think about who we are, mm -hmm. right? And what we're teaching kids, mm -hmm. especially particularly, I mean, we all know that eating other people's food is the great way to learn about them, yeah. right? Uh, and that the table, as we've talked about here, is this opportunity for sharing and connection. But if we, if we have messages in the back of our mind about the fact that some things are, are unclean or improper or less civilized, mm -hmm. That's well, not. It's not good. Man. It's yeah. not. We 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 got to change that story. Yeah. But there were a lot of people on the internet who were not happy with it. So what happened? Right. I there. It was my first real taste of mm -hmm. hate mail. Yeah. All told, is about three or four hundred. Wow. Pretty solidly hateful messages, mostly on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Lots of don't come here and try and kill mm -hmm. our traditions. Right. Right. Lots of uh, your ancestors clearly moved here for a better life. So what you need to do is shut up and assimilate and be grateful. Right. Mm. Really not understanding what I said. Yeah, that's that's right? ignorant. That's looking it's at it from ignorance. A hundred percent. And yeah. just not seeing it. I feel lots of attacks at my intelligence mm -hmm. and that and they're like oh don't you know everything's racist now right right a lot of that and like some people just got really serious this one dude he posted this photo that was like it it is two hyenas mm -hmm. but their feet there's this wild look on their faces and their faces are all bloodied like they had just fed it a kill or something mm -hmm. like that and they had this wild crazy look in their eyes and the caption on the photo to me was these young things have not been 
impacted by good manners and you know is this is this what you had in mind for really? our children so they're, they're, they're equating children to, to rabid hyenas and and and, and that my suggestion that not using cutlery all you know what I mean? they always they have to use cutlery meant that it had to be like diving your bloodied face into a oh yeah so what would you give as advice to students who might be looking towards a path or journey like yours where they want to speak up more and they want to use their voice to yeah. get a point across and then to have fielding you know you have a lot of confidence built based on all of the knowledge that mm -hmm. you have and you've written these with a lot of research backing so you are confident with what you right. wrote but three four hundred messages it was that a are lot the, yeah how, what would it knocked me do? down yeah it was yeah. a lot uh, and it was super painful as crazy as it is to say i was really happy to learn how to manage that mm. because it will not be yeah. right uh i talked to some other people in fact one of my okay. pals connected me to other brown girls okay who have done this, who speak publicly and have gotten hate mail and how a lot of just not paying attention to social media and just really tuning it all out. Okay. And then and then a bit of like just taking good care of yourself and you know what I mean? And uh, I mean, it's fine. And who knows what's going to happen once like I, it's preparation. Once this book drops, a lot of people will have a lot of opinions and mm -hmm. fine. But it's uh, the fact that this is a thing to learn to do was really that really hit me you know yeah. what i mean uh it's uh, months have passed and time and healing and all of that but at the time i was like this is not okay no i think part of the power that i see in you joshna is that you have co difficult conversations all the time but you've empowered the listener to mm. be in a space where they feel comfortable having a conversation with you more than it's a battle or a disagreement That's or wonderful. argument thanks or and being dictated to it, yeah, yeah being dictated to because a lot yeah. of the things you're fighting for are, I would say, asking for change. Josh, it's been absolutely fascinating having you in with us. And thanks. it's been a great conversation. Really like to say thanks so much for, for My coming My pleasure. In. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for doing what you do. Mm -hmm. To see uh, that you guys are here really supporting students and getting them ready for it, it makes my heart race, man. It's it's important work, and I really love the context. I mean, thank you for providing the inspiration and content that we can share with them. Now, mm -hmm. almost coming in clips as well yeah. as the book. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so you can find the book, Take Back the Plate. Or sorry, excuse me. Yeah. You can find the book, Take Back the Tray, available in May 2020. Everywhere. That's it. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. And you can Amazon listen. Amazon pre-sales up now. Yeah. And you can also listen to, to Joshna on her podcast the hot plate yep yeah available everywhere as well uh, apple podcast uh, everyone's got it google yeah. apple spotify it's everywhere fantastic thanks again josh thank you Great thank you. you all right this is jason ennis and i'm wendy ma and you've been listening to the chef pod where we are sowing the seeds for the future of the culinary industry